You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to, to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of the fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Least your accuser hands you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you will be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. I want to ask you a few questions. How do you respond when someone makes a mistake at work? How do you respond when your children are frustrating you by disobedience? Kids, what about when someone asks you to do something that you really don't want to do? How do you respond? How do you respond uh, to an empty milk bottle left in the sink? How do you respond to someone giving you the silent treatment because you've offended them for being blamed for something you didn't do? What about when you're cut off when you're driving? Or when you've tried to help someone and their response is ungrateful? How do you respond when you feel like someone is getting away with something that they've done wrong? Conflict, disputes, differences of opinion, hurts. As we go through this life, disagreement with other people will be a constant occurrence. Very possibly a daily one. Some conflicts will be minor and over quickly. But others, well, they might have some lasting impact on our lives. But regardless of the seriousness of the conflict, seriousness, the way we respond to the situation, or more to the point, <clears throat> the person on the other side of the conflict, is very important. As we'll see today, it's very important to God not just to our circumstances, but not only can it have a profound impact on our lives and the lives of those around us, but as a result, our response to conflict impacts on our witness to the world of what Christ has done for us. As we've sung about this morning, as we've talked about this morning, as God himself has responded to our conflict with him. So as Jaya mentioned, we've, um, and as we've just read, this morning, we're going to continue in the Gospel of Matthew and Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Today, we're going to focus on what will be the first of six practical examples given by Jesus to his disciples to flesh out what he means when he says in verse 20 that the righteousness of the true disciple of Christ should exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. So this is the first of a number, as, as we'll go over the next few weeks. And I guess in light of how regularly conflict impacts on our minds 
our actions and our heart, perhaps it's no wonder that Jesus goes straight in to address how we should respond to, um, uh, respond to that conflict in a God-honoring way. So as we come to this challenging topic, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning. We're thankful that you do. We're thankful that you have come in the person of your Son, that you have died in our place and reconciled us to yourself. We pray that this truth would uh, inspire us to live for you and to apply these words that you call us to in the power of your righteousness. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I think it's safe to say, as we read this passage, that Jesus is not pulling any punches this week. And if um, any of the examples that I read earlier um, uh, have caused any sort of emotional response as I I read them out, then this passage may at first, at least, seem pretty heavy going. And I guess the reality is it is pretty full on when you actually get down and look at it. I mean, not only do we have anger... Being, um, being sort of likened to murder. But we also have two very forward approaches to take when dealing with someone who we are in conflict with. And so as we walk our way through, I want to use two particular larger headings and, and three subheadings. The first is heartfelt obedience. And sorry, I don't have any slides. I ran out of time. Um, but heartfelt obedience is point number one. <clears throat> Three subpoints under heartfelt obedience are murder of the heart, when we're looking at verses 21 to 22, reach out for reconciliation, which is verses 23 to 24, and befriend your accuser, verses 25 to 26. And then to finish off, point number two, it's not too late to apologize. So, kicking off with number one, heartfelt obedience. Now, J.R. made clear for us a couple of weeks ago that Jesus is not intending for his disciples to beat the scribes and Pharisees at their own game. So in verse 20, when we see Jesus say, unless your, unless your uh, righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. We are not called to seek to identify and then obtain perfect obedience to all that God has commanded. By now, we've worked out that that is not possible. (laughs) As we've already seen in the Gospel of Matthew, the Pharisees were in fact criticized by John the Baptist in Matthew 3, 7 to 12, for their attempts to rely on the law to save them. We'll see that Jesus variously challenges this as we go through this Gospel. And certainly the apostles in the rest of the New Testament continue to warn against purely aesthetic obedience to the law throughout their letters. It's clear that even the most devoted attempt at keeping the rules has not and will not save someone. It will not result in admission to the kingdom of heaven. So who will enter the kingdom of heaven as far as we can see in this passage? Well, Jesus makes that clear in verses 3 to 10, as we saw a few weeks back. The poor in spirit, those who spiritually mourn, the meek, those who hunger after and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, 
the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. God's people, those who move beyond mere literal observance of rules and consider what is at the core of pleasing God. See, the Christian will not seek to avoid faithful obedience to Scripture, of course, but will go beyond just the rule to obey not just in action, but from the heart, in response to what God has done, rather than seeking to have God accept us on our own merits. So with that, we come to the principle, or the main principle of our passage. Subpoint one, murder of the heart. In verse 21, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders, well, they'll be liable to judgment. To, Jew- to Jesus' Jewish listeners, and Matthew's for that matter, Matthew being a book written to Jews, the reference to those of old would literally have been the ancient ones. It's like an, an Avengers movie. We've spoken to the ancient ones. And this would have instantly drawn their minds back to where the law all began. The giving of the Ten Commandments to the gathered people of Israel at Mount Sinai with Moses. And if you're taking notes, Exodus 20:13 and Deuteronomy 5:17 are places where that's set out. Possibly, some may have even gone further back and thought of places like Genesis, chapter 9, verse 5, where this was already being spoken about by God as, as the law is uh, beginning to be spelled out to his people. Basically, Jesus is saying, you know that it has always been the case that, if you, are, uh, that, that you are not to commit murder. Commandment number six, you are, not to, you are not to murder. And everyone would have nodded and said, yes, we get that, we understand. And he would have said, it has always been the case that if you do commit murder, if you unlawfully take the life of another person, then you are liable to judgment. That is, there is a legal determination that is to be made that demonstrates that murder is wrong. The taking of another person's life, a person made in the image of God, as Genesis 9.5 sets out, was wrong. It was against God's good design, and it required a reckoning. And you'll see that in Genesis 9, verse 6, for an early reference. And then under the Old Testament law, the offender would lose their life for taking another's. And there are many references. Again, if you're taking notes, Exodus 21, 12 and 14, Leviticus 24, 17, Numbers 35, 31 and 33 for some examples. So the rule was, you shall not murder. And if you do, well, you will face the punishment. The judgment was known and clear. And largely, well, that's a, that was probably one of the laws that would have been relatively easy for most people to follow. And still, largely, thankfully, is something that most people follow in our society. You do not murder. But Jesus goes on. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now, maybe that's caused everyone to sit up a little bit more. Hang on a second. Did you just say that being angry with your brother or sister, for that matter, makes you liable to the same judgment? 
the same punishment as murder? Well, to make the understatement of the century, that's a pretty serious statement. Unlike the charge of murder, any number of the people sitting there with Jesus could have been guilty of this. So while they were scratching their heads, Jesus follows up with two further statements aimed at sharpening the focus of this first statement. But again, in no way diminishing the art significance of it. He basically says, what I mean is that whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. The word translated as insults is raka. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. Someone with better Greek than me. So we well, whatever it is, it's all Greek to me. Basically, a, a word of contempt. Calling someone empty head, feather brain, or idiot. Something along those lines. Blockhead. You know, you, you, there's probably a number of different things you might think. Now, if there was surprise about the, uh, the earlier statement, then this would almost have seemed ludicrous. Calling someone an idiot was no doubt embarrassing if it was said in public, particularly in the culture of that day, where honor was quite a highly prized uh, situation. But how on earth could the council deal with this sort of matter? Now, the council was the Sanhedrin of 71 members, the high priests, the chief priests, scribes we've talked about, and elders. The top court of the nation of Israel. It would be something like the equivalent of a taking a very small and probably weak defamation case straight to the high court in Canberra. It just doesn't happen. But it's the second statement, and particularly the consequence of being liable to the hell of fire, which was probably really going to stand up, uh, make people stand up and listen. The hell of fire, or the was literally, likely, the, the, the Gehenna of fire, a pit outside Jerusalem where the refuse of the city was burnt after historic um, engagements with Moloch and other things prior. But there's a, there was a place where the refuse was burned and it was, it was uh, then used throughout um, the, Old, the New Testament, as we see, uh, with clear eschatological or end time ramifications, implications, as being the place of torment, the place where um, fire was continuing, where you would be outside of God's kingdom. So no doubt, hearing that saying, you fool, would bring home, uh, would result in such a consequence, well, that surely would have brought home a point. At least also, hopefully, satisfied them that Jesus wasn't trying to increase the statute book for offences in the Jewish courts. The direct translation for you fool has, appears, been questioned on its exact meaning. But in effect, it's much the same as raka. Again, holding someone in contempt as being foolish or unwise. To the extent there is a difference between the words, you fool is more about insulting the person's character or heart as opposed to the earlier raka insulting their brain or thoughts. And of course, human courts were not equipped to be able to try such matters and judgments of the heart. Jesus' reference to them was to heighten the significance from a worldly perspective 
But only God could know both what a person does as well as their thoughts and hearts. And there's a number of places that we can see in the Old Testament where the psalmists and the chronicler and uh, even Jeremiah talks about God seeing into the hearts of men. And it was God who would ultimately judge. Effectively, Jesus says, you know that it is wrong to kill another person. We know that. But I tell you to remember that it is wrong from the very first thought or feeling in your heart of contempt, anger, or judgment against another person. It is wrong to allow yourself to think another person is worthless, a fool, or not worth your time. Even if your thoughts about another person do not lead you to the action of killing that person, thankfully, your disdain for another human in your heart must not be maintained. It is wrong and as wrong in God's eyes as the act itself. It's a big deal. And I've got a, a simple illustration that played out while, we were think, while I was thinking about these, um, these passages. But I'm extrapolating on a little bit. I can tell you what actually happened afterwards, if you like. And this is my example earlier of the empty milk bottle in the sink, along with a few dirty dishes. Imagine this. You come along and find it there. It's in the sink. It's empty. It's finished. But it's not empty. There's still a little bit of milk left, slowly coagulating. You call out to your housemate. Why can't we rinse and put the empty milk bottle away when it's finished? Your housemate calls back from the next room. It wasn't me. So you reply, well, I didn't ask that. I just wondered why it was still in the sink. A simple situation. The person in the kitchen then, with emphasized banging of dirty dishes and running taps, tidies up the kitchen, rinses the offending bottle and throws it in the recycling. The other person continues to sit on the couch messaging someone on their phone. The issue, well, it quite readily could become a sore point for the rest of the evening. Nothing is said about it. Actually, not much constructive is talked about at all between them as a result. And eventually, you both go to bed. What just happened? Well, over a milk bottle, at that moment, the question was asked from the kitchen... And in a split second, a judgment was made. And without more, an assumption is born. They were being blamed. Now, whether the assumption is correct or not is not really in mind. But a belief sets in all the same. Perhaps the accusation is unfair. Of course, perhaps it's also the truth, which is why the assumption was drawn so quickly, perhaps. But the person does not like being exposed, so they deflect. It wasn't me. Despite the answer being it wasn't me, the person in the kitchen, in their own frustrated state, might hear or choose to hear, I don't want to talk about it with you. Or maybe they'll hear, I'm not interested in your complaints. 
Or perhaps they'll hear, I'm busy and you are not important. Or maybe even they'll hear, I saw it, but I didn't want to do anything about it. So what's it to you? In both situations, the beginning of anger, expressed through exasperated responses, born out of snap judgments about the other person, following some self-defending swipes at each other, well, it starts to look very much like the seeds of contempt are sprouting, perhaps even in full bloom. And to the point of thinking the other person is, in fact, a feather brain or a fool for even saying or thinking what they did. Well, well, innocent enough, right? That, that conflict, not a big deal in the grand scheme of the world. But what's that situation become except the end result of a Mexican standoff and there's no victor? Both parties are now up for murder. Jesus makes it clear that the sixth commandment is not just a prohibition against the act of murder, but it points to the concern of the kingdom of God to put away the more prevalent murder of the heart. Now, just as an aside, I think it's important not to get too hung up on the specific concept of anger in seeking to apply this passage to ourselves. Jesus himself, we'll see in Matthew, will get rightly angry about the way people were treating the temple of God in Matthew 21. He would call his opponents blind fools and hypocrites for their lack of understanding of the scriptures and their fastidious observance of the law at the expense of faithfulness in Matthew 23 and their unwillingness to recognize the value of life over law. And that's in Mark chapter 3. Paul would later say to the church in Ephesus, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. It may be easy to suddenly go, Whoa, so is it we can be angry or we can't be angry? At the end of the day, that's not the point. Again, what is important is the attitude of your heart. And Jesus goes on to provide some practical ways that you might test how your heart is going in a conflict. Avoiding your need to self-assess whether your angry, anger is appropriate or not, which, let's face it, is probably always going to err on the side of, nah, I'm fine. But if you can't do these next two things when you're in conflict, if you cannot reach out for reconciliation or try to befriend, befriend, befriend your accuser because of the condition of your heart, and where you're at with your conflict, well, that may just be a good indication that your anger is less than righteous. So, let's go and have a look at what those are. Sub-point number two, reach out for reconciliation. Verse 23, Jesus goes on. So, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. The so is a connecting word in this case, drawing what Jesus has just said about anger and, and calling people fools and all those sort of things and showing how his disciples were to respond when in those situations. In other words, Jesus might have said, because humans regularly tend to respond to conflict with each other this way, 
This is how serious you are to take my teaching. Now for us today, the situation we find, we find the, uh, the person in doesn't sound like too big a deal. Particularly now for us, in light of Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice on the cross and resurrection, if we look at Hebrews 10 and, and the abolishment of, of the sacrificial system, well, you know, it doesn't sound that big a deal for us. But as I mentioned earlier, Jesus is saying this in Galilee, before he's gone to the cross. His listeners were Jews, and as they listen, they would begin recalling the 130-odd kilometer journey they would have traveled to get to Jerusalem to attend the temple with their gift in the first place. Kids, how many of you like to turn around and go back to get something someone's forgotten when you've, you know, you've gone for a drive? Do you like that? Is that frustrating? It's pretty frustrating. I'd much rather kind of go, let's just forget that thing. Well, imagine you've driven past Adelaide River And then you have to turn around and come back to pick something up. And you've got a car. These guys didn't have a car. This is a journey that could have taken up to a week to get there. And now it's being pulled up short upon their remembering that they've got unresolved conflict back home. The animal is left at the temple while the journey is made twice more, mind you, home and back again in order to reconcile before the offering is finally made. In actual fact, this is a big deal. Not a little little thing to say. Of course, sacrifice at the temple for the Jew was the way that the Jewish people at the time demonstrated their recognition of their fallen state, their separation from God, and their need for his forgiveness and atonement. It was important. The Pharisees would have said, Ensure you do your sacrifices at all costs. But Jesus says, look, don't go for eye service. Go for Christ-like service. Go and make things right. Show what it means to be graciously saved by God. Then go and offer your sacrifice. We'll find various instances in the Old Testament and in the New referring back to how God wants our heart not our burnt sacrifices. And really, if we're to take seriously the call in Romans 12, for example, for us to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God as our spiritual worship, then this call becomes a daily consideration as we interact with other people and particularly as we directly or indirectly cause offense as we do. And for many of our more day-to-day conflicts, like, the one, like one of the situations I described at the start, perhaps, it's possible that some of us here have not reached out to the other person in that conflict. And this rather drastic measure that Jesus describes really tends to make the various excuses we might be making to put reconciliation off as all being fairly feeble. And I think it's also significant that Jesus doesn't provide a measure to gauge when it's appropriate to take this seriously and when it's not. 
Because the reality is, there is no measure. We are to be active in our pursuit of reconciliation every time. Jesus says of any conflict, Christian, don't leave it there. In fact, you cannot leave it there. As hard and as long as the process might take, what is very clear is that there really is no room for us to say that someone else has it wrong about our behavior and allow that to be some kind of permission to leave them with their problem. And I think that leads well onto Jesus' second example of how conflict in the heart is to be dealt with. And now in verses 25 to 26, subpoint: befriend your accuser. Jesus says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So in the first example, Jesus calls, calls his disciples to go to another person who we know has something against us. It's not a response as such. It's a proactive step. It's a reaching out to someone we know is hurt by us, but they themselves are not doing anything about it. The second example, though, is in the opposite direction. Here, the accusation of our wrongdoing has been presented to us directly, and we are called upon to respond. The person is taking us to court over this thing. The context appears to be something of a claim for a debt. The accuser has filed their action with the courts, and you're on your way to have the dispute determined. And it looks as though it's not likely to go in your favor, with the result that you're looking to spend some time in debtor's prison until the debt can be repaid. So Jesus says, take the opportunity, even on your way to court. Don't waste a moment. Come to terms quickly with your accuser. Work it out. Don't just stick your heels in and take every point and hope that you'll defend your case, like many in civil litigation uh, do. Take my word for that. In fact, the wording come to terms or reach agreement is in the nature of making friends with your accuser. How about that? Jesus says, don't just, just, don't just mediate an outcome so that you don't have to go to prison. A sensible thing to do in any event, one might think. But wholly resolve your conflict as far as you're able with your accuser so that he or she becomes your friend. Now, if we step back into the kitchen and, we, and our fight over the milk bottle, if our friend on the couch took this, uh, this approach from the start, and instead of being defensive when kitchen guy called out, if, if our friend on the couch thought, hmm, I did see that milk bottle, and I really intended to get rid of it before my housemate got home. Darn, I knew that that would annoy them. And in that moment, thought, my brother or sister has something against me right now and is leveling with me about why I didn't do something about it. How can I make this right straight away? And instead of the defensive, it wasn't me, they immediately, honestly and meekly, as we saw in the Beatitudes, apologized that they missed the bottle in the sink 
perhaps explaining that they'd seen it there after one of your other housemates left it out, but had just forgotten to go back to it after doing some other things. Well, that could have dramatically changed the way the conversation progressed, couldn't it? As the proverb says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. That's Proverbs 15 verse 1. So what does this mean for us? How are we to be, as Jesus has called us to be, the salt of the earth and the light of the world? Allowing our light to shine before others so that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. In Matthew 5, 13 to 16. Well, it brings me to my second head, main heading. It's not too late to apologize. Justin Bieber wrote a song in 2015 entitled, Sorry. Earlier, in 2007, I think, One Republic wrote a song entitled, Apologize. Both in their time enjoyed international success. The world loved their song. Both, in fact, are still played on the radio today. And both played in my car in that way on more than one occasion as I was reflecting on these passages. The words of the chorus of Bieber's song, Sorry, end with, Yeah, I know that I let you down. Is it too late to say sorry now? In the song, Bieber seeks to say that he's recognized that he's done wrong to an unnamed love. And while his motivations for reconciliation might seem a little questionable from some of the lyrics, and there is a good deal of deflection about how his apologies might be received on account of the other person, so it's not a great 7A apology, the song clearly struck a chord with people of the world as they too pondered their own situations where it seemed like it was probably necessary to reach out to say something to someone that they'd hurt in that sort of vague way. One Republic song, on the other hand, goes the other way. And Rebecca, my daughter, and I were having a little laugh last night about how if you were to put them together, Bieber would ask if it's too late to say sorry, and One Republic would say, yes, yes it is. (laughs) Their song, arising this time from unrequited love, spurned by some kind of offense, which was serious enough, apparently, for the singer to determine that it's too late to apologize. It's too late. I said, it's too late to apologize. It's too late. Curiously, though, the singer seems to still feel like he'd take another fall, take a shot for this lady, and that he needs her like a heart needs a beat. Sounds like that's pretty necessary. But, quite emphatically, he ends, but I'm afraid it's too late. I mean, that's devastating, really, when you think about it. But from what I see in my space in the world of conflict resolution, this relatively flippant approach to seeking to say sorry and defiant opposition to allowing someone to apologize at all, at least to the extent that it will influence their decision-making in any way, helpfully describes much of how people are walking through life. It seems that at any one time, most people are operating with some level of unresolved conflict and are at various stages of sadness, anger, or denial about it. But Christians, that is not the way we were made to live. As God's people, 
Jesus calls us to a better way. And in this we should, as Paul encourages, if it's possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Romans 12, 18. In fact, if you want a clear articulation of how our living together should look in light of offering our lives as living sacrifices to God, as I referred to earlier, read over Romans 12 later today. As an example of what this might look like without the work of Jesus in the gospel, I had an opportunity to talk with a non-Christian person recently about a conflict in their life. After the tragic loss of their father some years ago, and the resulting collapse of that person's world, really, around them, and deep vulnerability. Their grandmother accused them of stealing something from the estate, the deceased's father's, uh, sorry, the, the deceased father's property, her father's property. There was apparently no conversation with her, no questions asked to check what was actually going on, just the accusation. In the heightened emotions of the death of a shared loved one, and the old person's antics of an old lady. Despite the history of love and fun and happy memories together, the person determined in that moment to never speak to their grandmother again. Because that doubt hurt. It hurt big time. And the person could see no reason for her grandmother's doubt, allowing herself to be blinded by the hurt and rationalizing judgments about their grandmother that, they, that caused them to double down on their decision. As time went on, and their grandmother did nothing to suggest they even recognize the hurt that they've caused, the person's resolve in their decision grew until there was no doubt in their mind about their grandmother's uncaring and unloving attitudes. In effect, they'd said to themselves, their grandmother is a fool. Of course, they don't realize that they've done all the same things they're accusing their grandmother of failing to do in their actions. And so a conflict that came from confusion, sadness, and fear has been perpetuated for all of the same reasons. what happens without Christ. So again, when we look at our passage today and we recognize the countercultural way that it responds to conflict at a heart level, it is no wonder that Jesus would later tell his disciples that the world would know that they were his disciples by their love for one another. In John 13, 35. Now, a quick note, clearly the examples given in our passage today speak more directly to the person who has caused someone to suffer offense. It's the person that knows that their brother or sister has something against them or is responding to that person coming to them. Now, of course, there can be no guarantee that a person will be ready to engage with you immediately. Even a Christian brother or sister may not instantly respond with open arms. There are, of course, reciprocal encouragements to reconciliation for the offended party taught by Jesus in the Beatitudes as being a peacemaker, and later in Matthew 18, 
to forgive in response to Christ's forgiveness of us and in the Lord's, uh, Lord's Prayer in chapter 6 that we'll see soon. But it should, of course, be remembered that conflict is not black and white, and it may take and often does take some time. And as I mentioned at the beginning, our approach to seeking reconciliation and our efforts to resist the temptation to become angry and judgmental of our opponent will only be successful and will only be an example of godly righteousness when it is properly empowered by Christ's own righteousness in our lives. I think 2 Peter chapter 1, 3 to 11 is helpful in describing some of our virtues and certainly some of the virtues that Paul encourages uh, sorry, Peter encourages his listeners to go to, to the point of saying, I will continually remind you of these things because it's so important. This is what he says, verse 3. His divine power, God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious And very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self control, and self control with steadfastness. And steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, And sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Today is the day and tomorrow. And the day after, and every day that we have until we are provided entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord, to engage in people that we are in conflict with. Brothers and sisters, don't delay. If you know someone has something against you, go and be reconciled in the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ and his great reconciliation of you to himself.